3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, does it matter if life exists on another planet? UC Irvine astronomer Aomoa Shields says to find out we are not alone would change everything. Shields has devoted her career to studying the climate and habitability of exoplanets to further the search for extraterrestrial life. She's also one of very few black women in the field, and she's an actor. She joins us to talk about her new book, Life on Other Planets, a memoir of finding my place in the universe. That's next on Forum. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's good to be back with you. So today on Forum, let's talk about whether there's life on other planets and why that matters so much to Aomoa Shields. She's an astronomer and astrobiologist who's also a classically trained actor. We'll talk about her journey to becoming a leader in her field and why she believes she won't truly accept how big the universe is until she knows that other life forms share it. Shields is Claire Booth Luce Associate Professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at UC Irvine. Her new book is Life on Other Planets, a memoir of finding my place in the universe. And here's a passage. In one of the textbooks that I use to teach the course Life in the Universe, an analogy is given. There are as many stars in the observable universe as there are dry grains of sand on all the beaches in the world. Even as an astronomer and astrobiologist, this shocked me. It drove home the point of just how big, big truly is there's is something we're always trying to get students to grasp in introductory astronomy courses the sense of scale when we talk about astronomical distances and phenomena we say things like if we put the sun in washington dc and shrank distances between it and everything else down by a factor of 10 billion where would the nearest star to the sun be the answer san francisco california I always get a big reaction in class when I reveal the answer, even after wrapping their minds around shrinking the distance down by a factor of 10 billion, a number itself so hard to comprehend, the nearest star to the sun would still be across the entire country. It stuns my students and widens their eyes. I pause for a moment at the front of the lecture hall, staring into their faces, and let it sink in for effect. Again, that's by my guest, Aomoa Shields. Dr. Shields, thanks so much for coming on Forum. Tell us a little bit
4: about the kind of planets that you study. These are planets that could be rocky. The The smaller the planet, the more likely it is to have a rocky surface and a surface that we could stand, that someone could stand on or something could stand on and that an ocean could exist on top of. And so we're looking for not only looking but but studying these planets that have been found orbiting um, stars of different types, we're very uh, interested in the stars that are cooler and smaller than the sun. these we call them red dwarf stars or m dwarf stars. Um, and earth-sized planets around M stars are we, we discover they're they're pretty numerous and <laughs> and my work is really looking at what kind of climates, what kind of habitability those those planets could could nurture and support.
1: So your
3: focus is trying to understand the climates of these exoplanets. Could you just talk a little bit about your specialty around that?
4: Yes. So many people think that the most exciting part is discovering a planet that exists around another star, and certainly that is incredibly exciting yet our work starts once a planet has been found. Uh, My team is interested in determining how likely that planet is to be habitable, and there are only so many uh, there's only so much telescope time we could actually use and apply to these planets that we've discovered, and so we need to prioritize the planets that are the most likely to nurture uh, these habitable conditions and so what our team does is we take what we do know observationally about a planet and often that's not much it might be the mass of the planet it might be its size uh... there might be some information about the type of orbit it has the shape of the orbit But we don't know anything for these small earth-sized planets about the atmospheres of these planets and so we get to fill in the gaps using computer models we use the same kind of models that have been used to predict climate and weather patterns on the earth into the 2100s they're the same models that have been used to show the the impact of human-induced climate change um, into those those the next hundred years and we get to do things like change the type of star, change the atmospheric composition, and then we get to see how likely these planets are to be warm enough for liquid water to flow on their surfaces. And those planets that seem to be the the most habitable across the widest range of possible conditions and atmospheres and surface types are those planets that we'd like to put to the top of the priority list and have the next generation of instrumentation Mm -hmm. and observers to follow up on to look for signs of life in the atmospheres or on the surfaces.
3: So you really play a role in recommending which planets to prioritize because
4: of their potential hospitability to, to life. Do Using uh, funding from NASA and NSF historically, and yes, that's, that's our main goal.
3: And how did this fascination with, with space, the stars, the planets, how did that,
4: that develop for you? Well, when I was young, I would look up at the stars and at, at the sky at night, and it really sparked my imagination. My my first question was always, what's out there? Is there anything out there looking back at me? And as I say in the book you know my my seventh grade class was shown the movie space camp about <laughs> a bunch of kids who get accidentally launched into space on the space shuttle uh, this was a movie that came out in the 80s and it set my imagination on fire and I like ran back home and pulled out the world book encyclopedias and looked up I took out the volume labeled a and I looked up astronomer and astronaut and I saw these beautiful glossy pictures and and I I planned my career trajectory that day. I decided <laughs> I was going to go to the best science school in the world, which I believe to be MIT. I was going to study astronomy and I was going to apply to NASA after a few years of professional experience. Like, I, I was driven from, from day one. Um, and you know, unfortunately things, or fortunately I will say, they they don't necessarily turn out the way you intend at the age of 12. <laughs> and um, And I Got diverted, um, and I'm so grateful for that diversion today. But you know, I, I ended up stumbling into a, a play, and and then finding out that I loved acting too, and that that really began that that dual-sided nature, that inner conflict that I that I possessed for so long.
3: Right. You're also a classically
4: trained actor. So so when did you do that? So I had been doing little plays even before the age of 10 I realized but it always seemed to be a hobby for me I never considered doing that for a career but I'd gone to a prestigious prep school because they had their own observatory Phillips Exeter Academy and and I, uh was that was my thing astronomy and then some some girlfriends dragged me into an audition for the play steel magnolias and i honestly couldn't have cared less whether i got a role i was there i was like ah it seems like a good break from homework <laughs> and then i ended up getting <laughs> cast and i i ended up doing play after play and i discovered how much i loved storytelling how 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 much i enjoyed the collaborative nature of of you know putting a play together rehearsing day after day for weeks it seemed so much more connected than i often felt as an astrono- you know, as a budding astronomer on a telescope or studying astronomy at exeter that seemed quite uh, solitary and then here that here i was in acting and we were a group and we were putting together this performance and then at some you know at some predetermined time we would share this with our community and and it felt so different and new and fun, and I wanted to keep doing it, um, play after play, and that's what I did.
3: How do you see your experience acting playing a role in your work as an astronomer or astrobiologist at UC Irvine?
4: I get to use my acting training in so many ways today, and this is why I, I no longer feel as though it's there's any real conflict between loving the sciences and loving the arts. I see today how much they feed each other as a scientist, a lot of what we do all day is write and talk. You know, and this is something that, that isn't always discussed as like the, the nuts and bolts day-to-day activities of a scientist. Certainly carrying out the research is, is critical. However, a lot of what we have to do in order for that research to advance and for us to be able to do you know, additional research is to write down the results of what we've Done in a, way, in a way that's understandable. In some cases, understandable for a peer-reviewed specialist audience, and in other cases, understandable for a, a more a general audience. And understanding how to how to change between those two audiences and how to write for those two audiences is something that I've been able to do because of my humanities and arts background, and of course, talking. I I talk to students. I talk to my group members. I lecture. I have to talk in a way that's engaging for students. An hour and a half lecture is going to go really slowly if I don't know how to make it sound like a story and make it and make it sound as if I'm excited about this topic. And it's not as though I am really acting that way as a as a professor who gets to to teach <laughs> students about life in the universe. I, I truly feel that. But the acting experience, the acting training, has allowed me to. To tap into those emotions in ways that I don't think I would have been able to do if I didn't have it. Like one of the first exercises they have us do in acting grad school is to mine those experiences, like bring up um, experiences from childhood and emotions, and and you know at one point I remember we had to write these one-person shows, and leading up to that that performance of the one-person show, we we wrote down like our stories on our skin, like <laughs> all over our bodies wow. you know, with um, different pieces of paper that we attach to our skin. And this was a um, this was an activity that um, the performance artist Tim Miller had uh, had us all do. And it was like, wow, like we had to I had to own and and embrace that background that I'd had that I, I wasn't in touch with. I didn't really know who I was, honestly, uh, until that point. And I got to like that was part of that that was part of my training of we want, we want those feelings, we want those emotions, we want your history to be a part of what you're actually doing for your training. That was the first clue to me that, hey, how I feel and what I think about what I study is important and that that's allowed me to then find, you know end up directing discovering and directing a program called Rising Star Girls in which we we don't believe there's really any separation between the science that someone you know that that middle school girls learn and who they are as people we want them to bring everything they are to what they're studying because that's really how they'll truly feel a connection that's how i discovered my interest and in my my dissertation topic it had to be personal to me. And as I write in the book, like no one was going to be at my bedside every morning at 7 a.m. saying, get up and work on your Ph.D. every day for the next five years. Like that was going to have to come from me. And so it had to be personal. And that's why when I found out about water ice, this this interesting property that water ice behaved differently towards different types of life. We're
3: coming up on a break, Dr. Shields. So hold that thought. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with UC Irvine astrobiologist Awomoa Shields this hour. She studies the climate and habitability of exoplanets orbiting stars. And she's written a memoir about her path to astronomy as also somebody who is a classically trained actor. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have for Aomua Shields about her search for life on other planets, or about her path to becoming an astrobiologist. Perhaps you had two loves that didn't quite fit and then found a way to make them come together, as Shields has with her love of astronomy and acting. Um, you can email your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org, find us on social media at KQED Forum, or you can always call us 866-733-6786, 866 866-733-67. 733 Eight, six. And Oma Shields, just before the break, you were saying something really interesting about how the worlds were contradictory, uh, acting and astronomy. And and I wonder, is that a contradiction that you personally felt, or was that a contradiction that you were feeling was coming from messages of other
4: people around you? Mm. I think it was a combination Of the two, I whenever I would tell people that I had these two loves, astronomy and acting, I, I often got the response, "Whoa, that's that's different. That's that's weird. How how did that happen?" (laughs) And at a young age, I I I was pretty impressionable, and I internalized that as, "Well, this is an unusual thing that that I possess, that those two interests." And I hadn't, I didn't see anyone and my surrounding community who seem to be um, typifying the combination of those two interests, science and the arts and so I translated that to be that well it's not done and therefore I need to choose Um, but you know what I've realized now since is that that's that's not the case that even if I'm even if I have no role model it doesn't mean that I can't do the thing that I want to do that I can be my own role model and that's largely why I wrote this book, um, for people who might have various interests and they haven't been able to combine them and they, they're they not sure how to do it, or there's some sort of dream that they've left behind, either for l- practical reasons, We we have to support our families, we have financial obligations, or because they've they've gone so far away from those early dreams as a child and maybe they think that it's not possible no one's ever done it i don't see anyone doing it i I wanted to serve as an example one example of how it can be done even when um we don't see anyone out in the world doing it and that, that that's interest or that those dreams are you know, deserve our attention
3: you did pursue a PhD in astronomy after you graduate from MIT, you entered the PhD program in astronomy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So you were pretty sure that would be your trajectory, but you talk about how this was a difficult period for you. Um, you were doing well in some classes, but struggling with others. And then this sort of sense of, I love so many things, there's so many things that are different, um, that may not seem to fit into sort of the the pathway of the traditional astronomer, for example, were things that were causing some doubt for you. But you also write something that I found so striking. You write that my own mind became the biggest racist I had ever known. Can you just talk about what you meant by that in that moment <laughs> in your life? hmm
4: I wrote a poem when I was later on in my second PhD program where I, I, I used that line. Um, and I, I, I believe that a poem is, as someone has said long ago, it's a moment moving through me. And at the time, I believe that I thought because there are no black and brown female faces doing what I want to be doing, that that must mean that we shouldn't be doing it. And so I'm going to go do something that, you know, in which I see more black and brown faces, not not enough. You know, Hollywood still has a long way to go, but more than in astronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, that's that's what I think I meant about my own mind being my biggest racist. Again, there was that there's that internalization like I there's a, I can tell I can tell myself a story and that's one step and then the the second step which is the more damaging step and was for me is believing that story and once I realized oh that's a story that I was telling and then I believed it then what I can do is tell myself a new story and choose to believe that story and that's that new story can be a more positive one if I'm I'm here I'm doing this I'm doing this differently yes maybe I'm one of the few black and brown female faces I'm not gonna be the last and I'm here to stay
3: Well, you do leave for a significant amount of time, get an MFA in acting. You have success as an actor. um, But then you take a second pass at a PhD in astronomy, and you're admitted to the University of Washington this time. And I'm just wondering what made you go back. Like, how did you,
4: when did you realize that you had to go back? Uh, I love, I love remembering this experience. I, a friend had suggested that I, go back to astronomy at least for my day job. You know, she was like, uh-huh. "Did you like that thing that you got the bachelor's degree in at MIT because you probably could get a bit of better paying day job doing that than what you're currently doing." And I answered, "Yet." Yeah. I answered to myself, "Yes, I did." I didn't just like it. I loved astronomy. And so I had reached out to my old undergraduate thesis advisor and it was such a moment where I know that I I didn't plan it. It was it was it was to be, it was planned for me, because I reached out to her and she said, you know, there's this website where Caltech posts jobs that, in support of the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is a telescope at the time that was in space, very much like Hubble, but it was looking at the universe with infrared eyes instead of visible eyes. And I went to that website that day, and literally that day, a job ad had been posted for a help desk operator in support of this mission, and the minimum requirements were bachelor's degree and a few years of professional experience, good oral and communi- written communication <laughs> skills. But I was like, I've got that, and so that really started the. I I went. I took that. I got that day job, and I ended up going to talks. And during the time I'd been gone, this field of exoplanets had exploded. And yeah. those were the talks that really captivated me. So that that and several other things, like I had started, I had applied to be an astronaut, and I had not made the cut. I had gotten to do a science TV show, and yet it got greenlit, but they decided to change the host. And I was devastated. And in, during that ensuing time working at Caltech, I got Put in touch with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he suggested going back and getting the PhD. The astronaut Canada program. I knew that I needed a PhD to be able to have a chance at moving up in the uh, to the next levels in future application program processes. And the idea that at that job I had at Caltech, it, there was only so far that I could go without a PhD. It was self-limiting. So I, I remember a moment when I was in Italy with my husband and I was on the in the square and he had he was climbing one of um I think it was Giotto's bell tower on <laughs> the Duomo in Florence and and there was this I I read, write about this in the book there was a band playing dream on you know, <laughs> and, and I had this moment of pure surrender to the universe and I was like alright if I am meant to go back and get this PhD then I will apply to programs. I will go back home and study for the physics GRE. Ugh, like I'll do it fine, um, and that's that started that process. And I remember getting the call that I'd gotten into University of Washington, and I looked up once I hung up with the chair. I looked up and my little, my small office where I had been, uh, I'd been promoted to scheduling observations on the telescope. But I looked up at this poster of Carl Sagan, and this poster had him sitting on a bunch of the exoplanets that he always believed existed Mm. and there was a quote underneath that that picture and it said somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known and there was a smile from him looking down on me and it was like isn't that something like welcome back you know and so it was a very uh, meaningful moment for me
3: yeah we're talking with dr awomoa shields astronomer astrobiologist uc irvine actor and how all those things fit together. Her new book is Life on Other Planets, a memoir of finding my place in the universe. Do her experiences pursuing a PhD resonate with you? What questions do you have about her path to becoming an astrobiologist? Or what questions do you have for Aomoa Shields about her research, her search for life on other planets? 866-733-6786, the number, email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads at kqedforum. And we've got some questions uh, about your research. Matthew writes, organic chemistry now has to account for extremophiles, such as worms that live near volcanic vents. They use sulfur rather than carbon as the basis of their metabolism. What would be the chemical or other signatures of silicon or sulfur-based life forms? How can research in terrestrial extremophiles inform the
4: search for extrasolar life? Oh, what a wonderful question. I love thinking about extremophiles. In my Life in the Universe class, we have a whole unit on this because the cool thing about extremophiles is that they we consider them extremophiles because they not only survive, they thrive in conditions that we believe and we consider to be extreme. However, for these organisms, they don't find them extreme at all. You know, they're 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 happy they're exactly what they need and it's important for us to study extremophiles on this planet because it could be that the type of life we discover on other perhaps moons within our own solar system or exoplanets beyond the solar system that kind of life could be extremophilic life it could be um, microscopic life um, life that exists in either extremes of temperature or um, radiation or uh, acidity there's so many different ways that, um, that extremophilic life can, can survive and, 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 as I said, thrive. So this idea of sulfur-based life, it's, it's important for astrobiologists to do two things. We have to look for planets that might be conducive to surface liquid water because we know on our planet all life needs water to survive that's its main that's the the solvent that it that life all life needs from the tiniest microbes to the largest elephants needs to be able to carry out all of its chemical reactions and and build its its organic um, uh, molecules and, and and carry out the metabolism but it may not be the case elsewhere so and and it may not be that carbon is the main backbone for life everywhere. And so there are branches of astrobiology that are purely devoted to looking at alternative ways that life could carry out its metabolic processes. And sulfur, I've, I've heard as um, one of these potential kind of substitutions. I've also heard of um, phosphorus. I've heard of silicon and uh, what silicon-based life might look like. I've, I've seen the video and it's sort of, it could look like a bunch of rocks, you know, if you could imagine <laughs> that. So it's, it's really an exciting field and we have to, we don't wanna miss out on discovering life simply because we're so Earth-focused, we need to, to have that two-pronged approach. Yeah,
3: you have in your book posed the question, why does it matter whether life exists on another planet? And I'm wondering if you could talk about why this work matters, why
4: you think we have to know. I've been thinking a lot about this question recently. And historically, I would say the because it's there kind of thing. You know, like, the, why climb a mountain? Because it's there. And because humans are explorers. That's in our nature. And we see, a, we see a place in the deep ocean that hasn't been explored, and we build some kind of vehicle to go explore it. Or we you know, we go some part of the solar system that we haven't set foot on, and we work to do that my My perspective on this has changed since I became a parent. I have a huh. young daughter as I write about her a lot in the book, mm-hmm. uh, and she's five and a half now and it's like becoming a parent all of a sudden the the world this world was under a microscope, and i I had a conflict yet again of gosh i I don't have time to look for life on other planets. I need to be working to make this planet better and leave it better for her and However, I I feel that both of these things can exist. Um, it's not an either-or um, situation. It's a you know, it's a yes and both and or more than both and. And the why it matters is if we discover that we are not alone in the universe, everything is going to change. From the perspective of you know, I, that I have about my little petty worries or concerns or. You know, and I think that could be true for other people. How we think about our problems, how we move through life would shift if we know it's not only us. And I, I, I feel like the realm of possibilities expands, and my daughter's horizon expands um, if it's no longer just us. You know she she then becomes part of a story of a history in which there are many, many, many possible origins of life. And um I don't think I would ever regret her knowing that. And I, I I think that living in isolation and thinking in isolation on this planet is one choice. And using our collective wisdom and strength and and the sense of like we know what we're capable of. We've seen we've seen humans put another human on the moon. If given enough incentive and motivation, we know what we can do and we're headed back and we're and beyond. How, what would it look like if we included even more people than the people that were involved um, in that endeavor? You know, more types of people, more colors, more races, more genders, and allowed us all to be involved in that shared passion and shared goal of Determining whether we're alone in the universe, I think it's possible, and I think it could bring us all together in a way that that um, would benefit our planet perhaps even more than, than maintaining the spirit of isolation.
3: Is there an experience even before you had your daughter, the personal experiences that made the pull to know that there are other that there's other life out there on other planets particularly strong.
4: Hmm. Well, I think it it comes back to the acting thing for me. As I write about in the book, I I loved the sci fi movies and and shows. Star Trek: The Next Generation was a show that my family sat around the TV and watched um, every week, and then the the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. Um, Apollo thirteen, The Abyss. Even though The Abyss doesn't take place in space, it's you know, it's like another another uncharted frontier, the the deep ocean, and finding aliens in the deep ocean. Those those movies and those shows were that's that was a catalyst for me, and and I had to, again I wasn't sure if I wanted to be doing what. The characters that the actors were portraying were doing and looking for life elsewhere or whether I wanted to be doing what the actors themselves were doing and but either way I was in and and I think that that movies have been a catalyst for much of what I've sought to do in my life and so when I see it that's why this is why representation is so important and and having these role models are so important it doesn't mean that I can't do something if I don't have a role model but it sure does help we see that that um, people of color often stop pursuing STEM fields long before college because of a lack of self-confidence and few role models who look like them you know and I if I had had more people looking like me doing what I wanted to do I think that would have helped and and so that yeah that seeing that those endeavors those adventures dramatized um, in popular media really gave me that that excitement and imagination to want to really answer that question, you know, is there really life out there and what could that life look like and where does it live and how does it breathe and how does it speak? Those all came from from movies.
3: Hmm. Well, listeners, if you want to share whether the experiences and reflections that uh, Omoah Shields is sharing resonate with you, maybe you've pursued a PhD or or been alone or the only that you saw in your field, email forum at kqed.org. Find us on social at KQED Forum. Call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. More after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the search for life on other planets, the challenges and stresses, the joys of becoming an astrobiologist with Aomoa Shields, an astronomer and astrobiologist at UC Irvine. She's written a new book, Life on Other Planets, a memoir of finding my place in the universe. We want to hear your questions for Aomoa Shields about her search for life on other planets or about her path to becoming an astrobiologist or whether her experiences, the periods of doubt, the inflection points in her life, the different... Interests that she had in trying to bring them all together also resonate with you at 866 733 6786. Email forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or threads. This listener writes Is it possible to send some kind of small spacecraft to another nearby star system and have information returned within the lifetimes of people
4: living now? Hmm. It certainly depends on the star system, but But yes, we have a, the nearest star to us is, well, okay, here's the, here's the, here's the clincher. Um, It's all about our spacecraft propulsion speed. So the nearest star to us is about four and a quarter light years away. If we could send something, and and that star system does have a planet that's potentially habitable. It's called Proxima Centauri B, orbiting the system Proxima Centauri. It's a triple star system. It's usually referred to as Alpha Centauri. And um, if we could send something at close to the speed of light, that that travel that light travel time is four and a quarter years. and say that there was something on that planet that could receive that signal, then they would send it if they sent it instantaneously back to us, that would take four and a quarter years to get back. So that would be, and we do this exercise in our in my undergrad class, that that total time, to receive the a response back would be eight, eight, a little over eight and a half years. However, the the tricky part is that we are not able to send something to another star system at the speed at near the speed of light, and uh, it's still at the the, the tiniest fraction of a speed of light. But there are people people like um, exoplanet professor at MIT Sarah Seeger, and others who are working on being able to send small, tiny uh, uh, spacecraft. I think it's a CubeSat program, where you could send something at some percentage of the speed of light. that could go, and then then you'd certainly cut down on on the distances. Uh, one light year, it's it's a an interesting paradox, or if or a you know play on words. It's actually the distance light travels in a year. So when I say four and a quarter light years, one light year is ten trillion miles away. So that's a long way, <laughs> and. Um, and it's that's that's our biggest limitation is mm. how can we get spacecraft that uh, that go fast enough to be able to um, traverse those vast astronomical distances and could we ever allow a human to be able to travel in a spacecraft and do that? So engineers would, and flight engineers and aerospace engineers are certainly, I'm sure, working on these endeavors. Um, but that is what we always tell our students: is that's it's our our space propulsion capabilities um are that's that's setting the tone and setting um our 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 possibilities
3: well, the listener Judd writes in the nineteen fifties and into the early nineteen sixties I was at an art versus astronomy crossroads. I took the art route via deep Bohemia by way of encounters with Amiri Baraka and Walt Disney, a mix like oil and water my art did allow me the freedom to at least try mixing those otherwise hard-to-resolve cultural conflicts. And in fact, one of my older series of artworks is titled The Search for Life. Wow. wow. <laughs> Thanks, Judd. Let me go to mm-hmm. caller Peter in Florida. Hi, Peter. You're on. Hello. You know, uh,
2: you must know uh, who Neil deGrasse Tyson is.
3: Absolutely. You yeah, mentioned
2: him, yeah. Close right. I heard him. Uh, he described a, a, a cartoon like a, like a a magazine, cartoon, where you see this, like, flying saucer smashed, and there's a space alien crawling through a desert saying, ammonia, ammonia. (laughs) Right? Point is, like, who's to say what life is? Can it be based on ammonia? We were just, you know, it's like, it it was comical, but it it it, it makes you – Try to wrap your mind about who's to say what life is. What are we looking for out there? Yes. And uh, and when you talk about probability, you talked about I, the, that analogy of all the grains on all the beaches. But, you know, we just set up the, the, the Webb Space Telescope, and they look in the depths of the, the dawn of the Big Bang. And it we were able to see things, and we're saying, well, actually... It's more than all the grains on all the beaches. It, the universe is vaster. You know, you have to, it's like, what what are the multiples of all that now? <laughs> the numbers mm-hmm. keep changing, and uh, I mean, these are things to me to, to just ponder. My father, well, my father dropped a cigarette once. He was a smoker, dropped a cigarette, and he went down to get, it landed on its end. You know, the point is you say oh what are the changes say heads or tails it's like what about landing on its edge oh don't be ridiculous you know it happens
3: (laughs) well you know it's it's so interesting thinking about peter's question about like well who gets to define what life is and all the huge questions that come up um in your Mm -hmm. research and actually this listener is asking given these huge questions um that they are your day in and day out. How would you describe your
4: faith? Is that something you're comfortable answering, Oma? Mm. Uh, thank you for asking. I do feel comfortable. I certainly write about it in the book. I talk about spirituality, spirituality. in the book, mm-hmm. and I don't see a conflict between spirituality and science, um, and neither did Carl Sagan. And and there was someone who said, I, I, I offer this quote in the book that science and they had said religion. I like to use spirituality um, as in place of that. But science and religion should never be in conflict. If they are, then one or the other is overstepping its bounds. Um, it is true that we, we don't know what life might be like out there. We don't know what it needs. And that's one of the reasons why we can't only look for life as we know it here on Earth. We must also try our best to look for life as we do not know it and that certainly would be the type of life if we found life on Saturn's moon Titan which who knows the dragonfly mission will will hopefully answer some of the questions we have about Titan but the, there is a liquid on on the moon Titan it is not liquid water it's liquid ethane and methane so speaking of this idea of what kind of what other solvents might life need beyond water or could life use beyond water could it be liquid ethane or methane? Who knows? We'll see. Is there something swimming around in those oceans on on Titan, those methane or ethane oceans? So it is critical for us to continue to think outside of the box, even though there's such a diversity of metabolisms and life forms on this planet and everyone needs, everything needs water, that that may not be what life needs elsewhere. Uh, I think Find my own sense of spirituality everywhere uh, on this planet, and I think I mentioned in the book that in anything, if, even things in my own backyard, that I can't explain. You know, there's like <laughs> that. Um, there, there's a, there's a limit to what we as scientists can know. We know that the universe was created in the tiniest fraction of a second, something like ten to the minus thirty-four seconds. Boom, the Big Bang. And cosmologists are still writing that story because we're still discovering, as was alluded to, some new chapters to this to the story of how our universe came to be and how truly large and expansive it is and how it is expanding and if it even is expanding. And all of these things are we're getting so much more more new information. Um, And yet what happened before that 10 to the minus 34 seconds? What Hmm. caused everything to be created from nothing. That's the space where I, I believe spirituality exists and I believe something greater than us exists hmm. because I can't explain why the universe came to be when it came to be. And I don't think i might be surprised if, if any cosmologists could answer that question either.
3: Well listener Irene writes, I walked to a physics class at UCLA in 1969 to find an amphitheater of 200 young men and the professor standing down in front looked up and yelled, we got one. Oh my God. Apparently there had never been a female in that class. I shrunk into my seat. I felt incredibly embarrassed to be the center of attention and did not want to be there anymore. This is in spite of being the daughter of a physicist. So singularity, even with role models, is a steep uphill battle. I am so moved when I hear the experiences of other women in STEM fields, and especially women of color. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things, you do you do go through this process twice. You pursue it um, once, then you leave to pursue acting. And then you go back again and you experience success. You have some incredible reflections about taking the qualifying exams and feeling just the pressure of all the people or the very few number of people who came before you and how they did and how that influences the way that people will perceive your ability to pass and and so many other things that you're contending with. I, I wonder why the second time was different. What did you find helped you succeed at that time?
1: Hmm.
4: I want to thank the the listener for sharing that story. I'm incredibly yeah. moved by that story, and um, I want to read their story <laughs> to say um, I hope they write that down. Um, is it's important, and it's a story that deserves to be shared widely. Um, and unfortunately, is is not as unique as we might wish it were. Um, for me, the difference was. Community. Mm. When I that first time in that first PhD program at the University of Wisconsin Madison, although I had, I believe, a strong support in the fact and the majority of the faculty in- there in the in my department, uh, and I I felt that most of them truly wanted me there. But when I began to struggle, I isolated. So that you know that the, there's an external component there that I I certainly. Th- want us as a collective in, in faculty and, and academia and, and astronomy to, to work on in terms of letting people know we want you here um, we want you here we want you to stay here it's not just about getting you here but how do we keep you here so there's that part but there's that internal part I can't I can't really control a whole lot about whether departments choose to make themselves more inclusive to black and brown and f- more female faces. And that's why it's so critical for those of us who occupy those um, those identities to have that for ourselves, to know when we need help and to and to go actively seek it out. And that's what I didn't do the first time around. Instead I got small. And this and the, the the harder it was for me, the smaller I got. And that we talk about a positive feedback loops in, in climate science that that a positive feedback back loop essentially means more creates more, and the negative feedback loop is you know you start with more and then you end up with less well a positive that that getting smaller and smaller for me was a positive feedback loop in, in, the, in the not in the good way, like the the smaller I got, the, the worse I did, the worse I did, the smaller I got, and it just kept on going. But what that also means is if I choose to in the second time around, once I realized, okay, I have this. I have this thing, this imposter syndrome that's been written about a lot and has and ex- been experienced by a lot of people who are from communities that are historically marginalized, and also from people in majority communities I've heard um experience this too. I know I had these three things as I write about um African American woman in a field dominated by white men, um older returning student, over a decade older than than most of my peers at that second time around in that second PhD program and a classically trained actor. <laughs> so I had three reasons to feel different and separate. Um, and I write about how like I knew I couldn't miss class because I was the only black person in the class. Like if I missed it, uh, there was people we're gonna really
0: see. <laughs> no.
4: <Yeah. laughs> I could not blend in. So like once I I realized okay I need help I'm feeling a lot of pressure I'm ooh I bombed that first journal club talk as I which is ugh even reading that over that part of the book I'm like it just brings it all back It's still it's it's that that and I but I you know I'm I'm able to use that to use that experience with stu- with my students today who can go deer in the headlights when it comes to talks and I can now on the other side of it help from that from that place because I I relate I know what that's like. Um, but I, I, I went seeking whatever support I could find. There was a graduate process group for um, women of color on campus that was uh, conducted by a black man, a mental health professional, and he made a space for us. There were maybe like 10 black women from week to week, and he just let us come there in that uh, at the mental health center and talk, talk about what we were experiencing in our respective graduate programs talk about our families, talk about what were going on, was going on in our personal life and how that was informing our ability to do our work. And, and he made that space for us, Dr. Michael Kane, and mm. um, it made such a difference. And there mm. was another uh, mentor program uh, that was created by Dr. Ashanti Johnson, um, who was who's the first black woman to get, a I think, a Ph.D. in chemical engineering from her university. Um, and she started this program to give back. Um, and that well, also...
3: Oh, yeah. let me interrupt you for just for one second so that I can yes. remind listeners that we're talking with Aomoa Shields and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Yeah, it, it really does sound like it, it was community and, and yeah. those spaces that, that were created. We, we got this incredible comment from Susan who writes, I knew Aomoa in high school where her brilliance... <laughs> was already evident. (laughs) Aomoa's ceaseless curiosity about the universe and the ways in which she makes her field of study relatable to the average human are true gifts. Thank you, Aomoa, for telling your story and giving me motivation to do more to nurture my artistic side and to learn more about the stars and beyond. (laughs) Thank you, Susan. Well, that's incredible. Thank you, Susan. I I feel like this is a good time just to have you talked a little bit about rising star girls the organization um, that is inspiring and nurturing that curiosity about the stars
4: and beyond thank you this program is so dear to me when i was in graduate school and starting to apply for postdocs i was thinking about what kind of an educational outreach program i wanted to be involved in as a postdoc and um, i was I had my eye on a particular fellowship that was sponsored by the National Science Foundation. They have an astronomy and astrophysics postdoctoral fellowship. And what's cool about NSF is that they want you to do research, and they also want you to to give back to think about the broader impacts of the research that you do. So you have to propose some kind of an educational outreach plan that you design. And I thought, how can I combine my love and background in the arts love for the arts and and my interest in astronomy and so i came up with like putting together a workshop that i called universe more than meets the eye and even before i looked up in the astronomy education literature uh, to see whether there was a correlation i had this idea that that the arts could be used as a gateway to involving young middle school girls of color in astronomy and astrobiology and then sure enough the education literature has supported it that when we involve um... these communities in creative role-playing exercises literary exercises it increases their confidence uh... in both asking and answering questions in astronomy and that really was a springboard i, I created this workshop I, I was awarded that fellowship and and then that led to the creation of this program, Rising Star Girls. The core of the program still is this workshop, and we now have been uh, in existence since 2015. And we say all g- girls of all colors and backgrounds come and discover the universe um, and the astronomy and astrobiology uh, phenomena with us virtually so if any girl in the world can participate, and it's free. Funding is, is has been... Um, Uh, provided by NSF uh, ever since. And we want them to know that the universe is for them.
3: Wow. Well, I will give the website risingstargirls.org. And I will also give the title of this book by Aomoa Shields, Life on Other Planets, A Memoir of Finding My Place in the Universe. Thank you so much, Aomoa.
4: I have loved being
3: here. Thank you. And thank you, listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.